Advancements in technology to date and the pace of change in the future is far beyond the evolutionary speed of human development. I don't want machines to be conscious. I want them to be competent. We're building smart cities, smart homes, smart offices, but now we, the people, need to be smarter in using technology. How can we actually tell when this technology is being used against us without us knowing? How tech is built and how we use it as humans has never been more important. I think perhaps counterintuitively, machine learning may bring more humanity to work. I'm Tom Parker, and welcome to the Next 5 podcast, brought to you by the FT Partner Studio. In this series, we ask industry experts about how their world will change in the next five years and the impact it will have on our day-to-day. In this episode, we'll explore technology and us, how our automated future and the interactions we have with tools, including AI, will shape humanity. Industrialization, where machines first started to take over human tasks, has led many experts to discuss the relationship between man and machine. The Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th century shifted labor systems from field work to factory work. The initial fear of job losses made way for an increase in employment opportunities as machines required operators and operators required managers. Wages in factories were higher than farmers' incomes. Automation, facilitated by artificial intelligence, is destined to have a major impact on jobs and the workforce. This new relationship between man and machine will reshape the labour force, the way we work and our very connection with our employers and colleagues. But by how much? Perhaps not as much as first thought. Ten years ago, in 2013, an Oxford University study predicted that 47% of jobs would be lost to automation over the next two decades. But just two years ago, in 2021, the OECD submitted that 14% of jobs are at high risk of automation. And recently, a March 2023 report by Goldman Sachs suggested that roughly 9% of the global labour force today could be disrupted by AI the equivalent of 300 million jobs. So the estimates are shrinking as the tech evolves, but it's still destined to have an impact. I think there will be about 2 million jobs impacted by artificial intelligence and automation, some less than others. This is Gerd Leonard, futurist, humanist, and CEO of the Futures Agency. I wouldn't say that 200 million jobs are eradicated, but seriously impacted. Like, you know, if you're paralegal, I mean, what do you do as a paralegal? You research, you check facts, you make recommendations to the lawyers. Okay, well, that's an AI job, unless it's a question of judgment, like criminal lawsuits. But if I'm going to check the real estate records and what's sold for what and, you know, whatever, you know, that, that's an AI job. It's about logic and rules. Anything not, not rules, paralegal has to do. So I use the same pyramid as a Maslow pyramid, where on the bottom we have data information and basic knowledge. That's becoming machine territory, right? A robot can build a bridge and a robot can print a house. A robot can also figure out where to print it and what material to use and what to order. So what we have to do is we have to say, okay, a good engineer should be an engineer that is above the AI level, which is not that difficult right now, but eventually becomes more difficult. And we need to train our future workers to have more human character, more human traits, so that they can have things like judgment and understanding and 
complexity and to deal with VUCA and, you know, agility, resilience. That is really important. I don't think it's about losing jobs. I don't think it's about work going away. I think it is about work evolving. This is Steve Wood, SVP of Product and Platform at Slack. And I'd hope that it actually results in empowering more people to do things that previously were maybe inaccessible, where technology evolves people's work in terms of empowering more people to kind of rise up and kind of do more effective work, adapt in in their working life, that certain things go away, but other things enter. I would be hard-pressed in my world if I said to my colleagues, do you need more creative time to think more about where directionally we should go to understand where we should be placing bigger, bolder bets on the future roadmap of Slack? Would you appreciate more time to do that so that we could collaborate more effectively with each other, drive transparency between each other to make sure that we're all aligned, we know what's happening. I said, do you need more time to do that? Could I give you more time to do that? I know for a fact, every one of my colleagues would say, please, yes, please, yes, give me more time to do that. If you could take more of this work of work away from me and let me work more in the creative space, more in the collaboration space, the more human side of transparency and alignment, we could drive far faster. So that's getting people out of work. It's just changing the caliber of work and the collaboration of work. I think perhaps counterintuitively, machine learning may bring more humanity to work rather than taking it away. That's a great point about bringing more humanity to work. AI can't quite crack the code on social intelligence traits, such as caring and persuasion, or foster creative intelligence than in people is built through the nature and nurture of human development. So is it possible to create a work environment that harnesses the productivity gains of automation and AI, but without losing connection or engagement amongst employees? Well, I think for any kind of meaningful connection and engagement to be possible, certain things have to be in place. This is Natalie Nahai, international speaker, best-selling author of Webs of Influence and Business Unusual, and host of the Hive podcast. So things like psychological safety, the sense that you are not in immediate jeopardy, that if you voice unpopular opinions, you'll have the space to be heard, you won't be penalised for voicing concerns. I think also there's another element around security, which when you're living through a period of rapid change, not just in technology, but also issues around, you know, energy resources, uh, geopolitical disturbance, etc., biodiversity loss, like there's a lot of uncertainty around. So how, as organizations, can you foster a culture in which not only is there psychological safety, there's also a sense of security so that people feel free enough to do their most creative work. And I think that's the area where AI has yet to kind of encroach upon the the creative space where we can generate ideas. And so I think there has to be a cultural context in which those things are made possible. And that means reducing fear, increasing the possibility for innovation, creativity, and rapport. And so I think if we're talking about any kind of transformation and empathy-led digital transformation, you have to first think about what are the biggest challenges that stand in our way of being more empathetic towards others? And those are social and they're cultural. And then what are the things within social and cultural structures, and again, technology comes into this with social media, that exacerbate rather than reduce conflict and therefore create a situation in which empathy is quite hard to come by? And then how can we use digital tools to reduce some of those impacts and create spaces in which people can actually come together and feel like they have a voice 
and come to a, a mental and emotional space where they can have vulnerable conversations, be heard and be witnessed with discomfort without feeling like they are at real risk and in real threat. So I think that has to be at the heart of any transformation that happens. How can we use all of the tools available to us to create a more nourishing environment in which to deal with difficult issues? Steve, what's your take? How do we empower people with technology? It's a great question. Actually, it's been a huge part of my career, empowering people with tech. But I think it starts with meeting people where they work. That's the key, for sure. But I think it also involves people, in some regards, self-selecting the tools that they find most productive. I know that they can be harder in larger environments, but the tools that they engage with on a regular basis to kind of help them do the work. And I think if you can empower people to bring their creative endeavors into software, to not be using software, but actually leveraging and automating it to kind of get the tools to work the way they do. I think that's hugely empowering. So how you do that is obviously meaning them how they work, building tools are simpler and easier to use. That's kind of how we see the empowerment side. It's obviously a challenge to kind of empower people with tools. We're seeing a huge surge in things like automation and intelligence that are changing the trajectory of that engagement. Actually, we have this report, this state of work report that Slack does all the time, just to kind of get a sense of pulse of the industry. And one of the things that came out was when people use AI, for example, they feel they report some 90% higher levels of productivity, which I think is kind of interesting. And I do think there are certain points in the history of technology where this is inflection points. And I think we're at one of those now. And I think that that inflection point is really making software more human. And I think we do now have the tools to make technology more human. So it's a new age. It'll be interesting to see how people do adapt to bring this technology in. I, I do think that with the today level of intelligence, I see technology as that kind of co-pilot in how you work, that it's helping you understand problems and problem spaces better. But I don't see it as something that's kind of that creative intelligence or that it's actually really thinking. It's more just mining and bringing you that information in a way that is human. Alvin Toffler, author of Future Shock, published in 1970, said... The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. Reskilling employees enough to satisfy the surge in demand for new technologies in the workplace is paramount. Lacking the necessary skills will slow down the shift to a digital economy. The UK's CIPD 2023 quarterly labour market outlook showed that 57% of employers had hard-to-fill vacancies. 40% of them were skills shortage vacancies. So how do we better learn, unlearn and relearn in line with our rapid technological advancements? Well, it is quite clear everybody has to be deep in technology, understand technology, learn technology. That doesn't mean you have to know how to program. I mean, I can speak to my wristwatch and will program for me now. Not very well, but it will just like I can order a car. So being good and being technology-friendly is an absolute must. But having said that, you know, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, is not the ticket to our future. It is something that we keep doing and something that we want to have everywhere, but really is the human part that machines can't do. That is our ticket to the future. So foresight, imagination, collaboration, compromise, empathy, narrative, compassion, you know, all of these things. So businesses now have to awaken these human parts rather than people acting like robots. And it's totally clear if you work like a robot, a robot will take your job. If you learn like a robot, you'll never have a job 
or you end up working for a robot. And this is painfully clear. So our education has to change. Our adult education has to change to give people the sense of value and creativity that we all have, but lost. We really do have to focus on what makes us human because that is what makes us different than machines. I think Peter Drucker said something very similar once about strategy. I always say culture eats technology for breakfast. You know, a company's success is about culture. It's not about technology that commoditizes. It's about culture. The invention of the printing press in the late 15th century made possible the widespread preservation of knowledge and increased access to information for readers. Elizabeth Einstein argued that this technological advancement changed Western society at large by forcing a fundamental shift in mentality, communication and collective memory. Natalie, is there another way of looking at this reskilling? What about societal change? I think, again, it's this idea of starting with the end in mind, which is what are the things that we most need help with? So, for instance, the great examples that lots of people cite, medical breakthroughs. Wonderful. Why not crunch numbers and figure out extraordinary ways of healing people that are based on virtual models so you're not having to test on people or animals? Like, There's so much potential for using technology in a way that really does root itself in empathy. If we're going to be creating solutions that reduce the amount of work that humans need to put in in order to get amazing outcomes. You don't need as many workers. So then what are you going to do with people? And, and how do you live the good life? So this idea of eudaimonic happiness, you know, the sense of having um, a life of dignity, of integrity, of flourishing. And when we think about that, one of the people whose work I really like, a psychologist called Carol D. Riff, actually came up with a framework back in the late 1980s around eudaimonic happiness, which plugs into this perfectly. And she talks about our desire for autonomy to be in the driving seat of our lives, to have positive relationships with others, to be able to have some control or mastery over your environment, to be able to choose how you live, for instance. Personal growth, purpose, and self-acceptance. Like These are pillars of a thriving life. And so I think if we can orient ourselves around frameworks that we already know based on decades of research in the humanities and psychological sciences, then that's going to help us much more accurately decide when technological advancements and integrations are going to lead us more in that direction or less. But that's supposing, of course, that we're orienting ourselves not just for maximal profit, but for maximal flourishing. AI can mine data at eye-watering speeds. The benefits, if used correctly, are abundant. But it can use this data to analyse human behaviour, predict what we will do, and even find weaknesses in our decision-making. How much can AI manipulate human behaviour, and how do we need to prepare for this? Well, I think we're very, very close to AI being able to simulate pretty much anything that we show it, whether it's our facial muscles and robots, the way that we talk, how we interact, language, images. Simulation is getting very, very good, and that is a scary part because it's utterly confusing for us. I think Demis Hassabis once said about AI that AI is defined as uh, information and data turned into knowledge. Okay, And what we have now is data and information turned into content. And that is amazing and definitely a great crutch and tool for us. But if AI will start telling the narrative to us, you know, the narrative of the world, our stories, our news, our politics, you know, that is 
not a good thing because it is fabricated. It's just about logic and patterns. Right? So this is one of the fundamental challenges that we have to understand how we delineate what's real and what's not real. And that is the short-term problem with AI is exactly this, a kind of reductionism. Natalie, your thoughts? Oh, would that I had a crystal ball. So I think there's lots of different ways in which AI can manipulate human behavior. So if we think back all the way back to the 1960s, when an MIT lab, first Rogerian psychoanalyst, well, pseudo-psychoanalyst program called ELISA was created. And it was basically a very simple model which would feed back based on the input that it received phrases. So if someone said, oh, I'm feeling quite depressed, this little program would say, oh, how long have you been feeling depressed? Tell me more. What do you feel about the connection between X and, and Y? So we've always had this tendency to anthropomorphize. And if we feel that we're listened to or heard, even if it's just very rudimentary mirroring or mimicking of language, our tendency is to experience a sense of rapport and attachment, even in the most basic way. So we're already at risk from the get-go. We're at risk. And then if you bring into the mix voice cloning, compelling high-quality deep fakes, the ability to create you know, an interesting piece of narrative that can then get fed to a system that then repeats it in a convincing way, which we've seen all these voice scams in recent times, the question very quickly becomes, how can we actually tell when this technology is being used against us without us knowing? So what does the next five years look like? What do you want to see happen? Steve? So the next five years is obviously hard to say. Nobody predicted a lot of the things that we would see. But I think in an industry, you often see these inflection points. I think the last big one we had was with the iPhone. For a developer, it became a very exciting nexus of tools and technology and processes. It was an incredible thing to bring for human creativity to really unlock this whole set of new use cases. And I think we're there now. Again, and I think what's coming together now is the ability to integrate with tools, to bring in the tools that you use that make you productive in, in your work. It's the ability to automate those tools in ways that are unique and accessible and available to you. And then I think that's with machine learning and AI is going to change how we experience technology. And I think it is going to make it more human and more accessible. I don't think we could do that before. So I think we will look back five years from now and make statements like, well, do you remember we used to have these like databases and we'd type stuff into fields and then we'd hit submit and it would save the record and that's kind of how we worked? That was kind of crazy, wasn't it? Now we just kind of work like a human. We just write things down that we care about and are important. And the systems through integration and automation and machine learning and AI figure out how that data needs to be uh, preserved and remembered, and then how it needs to be reflected back to us when we need it. And I think that will make technology far more human and accessible than it's ever been. I think we should use our time now to think much more creatively. We should use our time now to look at these technologies and ask a lot of very fundamental questions. Given that technology can now help us organize, collate, preserve, save, integrate, automate, all that kind of stuff, the knowledge that is most important to how we work, how can we re-experience how we work with technologies and tools? How can we re-experience how we engage with those tools in the same way that we did with the iPhone? So I think it's a super exciting time. So I don't know what the five-year outlook will actually be, 
but I'm certainly very optimistic that it's going to be far more human, which I think might be the opposite of how a lot of people are starting to feel. Maybe that machine learning is feeling scary, but actually I think it will herald in a more human way to work with technology and tools. I think we'll feel far more instructed, we'll feel far more knowledgeable and informed about what's happening. So I'm very excited about the future. I think the next five years are going to be a tremendous explosion of innovation. So we'll see where it goes. Natalie. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of disruption. It seems as though we're making decisions in technology, many of which are resource intensive, that have huge social and environmental impact, as if we're going to just keep having access to the same energy. We're not. Minerals are finite. Energy is finite. Um, Prices of fuel are going up. Renewables are a great option, but they're certainly not going to be able to sustain our current energy usage. And so I think there's some interesting questions around what happens when scarcity is factored into the models of growth and technological advancement that we haven't yet taken into consideration. I think there's also something around the ways in which different parts of the world are going to respond to technological advancement. So for instance, with the EU making decisions around AI regulation kind of connected to GDPR and being almost one of the golden standards against which other nations are perhaps judged, like the US or Russia or China, I think we're also going to see a shift drifting apart between some of these geopolitical regions in terms of what AI is permitted to do within certain territories. And I think that's going to be super interesting because it means it's then going to have an impact on what kind of innovation is permitted, what are the lived experiences of people within those societies, things like facial recognition being rolled out, a social credit score systems, surveillance capitalism, the disappearance of cash and what that means for autonomy. And so th- there's just so much that's entangled with the digitization of everything and the scoring of everything that I think is going to have a lot of consequences that we haven't really thought about yet. What I would like to see is the opportunity for us to think more deeply, think more slowly, more critically, and couple that with not just an awareness of our kind of internal emotional weather as it changes, but what are our deepest longings? What do we long for in this life? When we reach our deaths, wherever and whenever they might be, you know, will we think to ourselves, well, I lived as fully as I could. There's a beautiful quote that I really love by Michael Mead. And he says, whether we know it or not, our lives are acts of imagination and the world is continually reimagined through us. And I think we have the opportunity to really reimagine who we want to be in collaboration with technology and with the living world. And finally, Gerd. So next five years, total change. Basically in technology, everything that was science fiction is becoming science fact. Speaking to machines, uh, working with machines, uh, 3D printing of organs, quantum computing, nuclear fusion. And we're about five years away from AI becoming so capable in simulation that there's no way for us to know the difference. That includes robots, humanoid robots. That we can probably tell in five years, but if it doesn't have a body, I don't think we could tell in five years what it is. And so that becomes a real issue as to how we delineate this. And I always say that we should not be striving for artificial general intelligence as a goal of companies or science, because that is a suicidal goal. It's also utterly pointless because I don't want machines to be conscious. I want them to be competent. Just get the work done. If a machine can make me work, you know, three or four hours a day, 
left of work for the same money for me, that I'd be a happy man. I don't want the machine to think and to create and to make meaning. What I want to see happen first is I think I would like to see complete commitment from technology companies to create the good future, not just the rich future. And for us to have a conversation about quantum AI and so on, about how they can contribute to the greater good. So I would like development of a global consciousness. I think we need a council, especially on AI, maybe even a council with executive power that creates binding agreements like we have a nuclear, you know, they're binding, but people break them, yeah, okay. But so far it has worked out. And lastly, I think most importantly, I think about all of this, we need to have a better narrative on what the future is. You know, the future isn't going to be just bad and difficult. The, the future is better than we think. And Kevin Kelly says this a lot too. It's like, it's not that we have less problems, but we have more capacity to solve them. I mean, we have at our disposal huge scientific and technological advancements, but we're too stupid to get together to actually use them right. So yeah, we could have a green economy now, but you know, we, we're paying $6 trillion a year to fossil fuel subsidies because, you know, that's what it has always been. We need to make a better narrative about the future, that it can be good. There's two things. One is that humans can do the right thing given the right circumstance and that we can actually solve things once we realize what they are. And B, the more intelligent being, entity, rules over the ones less intelligent. And so uh, those are two things that make me hopeful as long as we can maintain our positioning as being you know, both compassionate and collaborative and intelligent. That gives me great hope that we can achieve something that's really amazing. In 1940, Charlie Chaplin, in one of his few speaking roles, said in a speech from the great dictator, We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Automating key tasks could eradicate the more tedious aspects of our jobs and allow human employees to focus on more meaningful, fulfilling tasks. Tech might take your job in the future if it is based on tasks that are repetitive and easily learned by machines. But we won't be without jobs. They may just look and feel different. Our lives will feel different. Luckily for us, there are those out there thinking and feeling their way through the complex and lightning evolution of technology. Whether you're Steve at Slack, working out how to empower people with tech, where it serves as a digital assistant or co-pilot that will bring more humanity to work, or Natalie, who hopes for a eudaimonic future where technological advancements foster better connections and relationships with others. And finally, Gerd, who is also striving for the good life of compassion and collaboration, where machines are competent, not conscious. All are aware that we're at an inflection point. We get to decide the future. Hopefully one where technology is technology, and we, the people, will remain just that. People.